Hello everybody, it's us again, we're back. It's What Would the Smart Party Do, episode 99, and you don't even get a flake in it. But you do get a gaz. Hello, mate. Hello, Baz. How's it going? <laughs> it's all right, mate. It's all good. Here we are again in our recording room of role-playing shenanigans. Um, and uh, no guests, again, we've given them the heave-ho. We might bring some back for next time. If you're still with us when we get to triple digits and the glorious episode 100 coming to you soon from smart towers maybe wedge some guessing for them but until then it's uh it's just you me and some dusty old books of history right yeah absolutely i'm just back from the seven hills gaming convention up there in sheffield and the theme for this year was historical and i did get some uh, grief off one or two people for not my games not being historical enough but i pointed out that some of them were quite <laughs> old so I think what we should do this time <laughs> is talk about games from the 1970s. Because if, if that's not historical, I don't know what is. People argue with me at the weekend, but I think that's true. Well, it's the previous century. That sounds like history straight away. We're not talking about games set in the 70s either, are we? We're talking about games from the 70s. The initial wave of role-playing games, the ones that got this, this grand folly of ours launched in the first place. Yeah, it's like 40, 45 years ago. If that's not history, I don't know what is. But I was alive, so that makes him feel really, really not good. Oh, God. <laughs> You're a historical figure, Baz. Think of it that way. I am an artefact of the past, as my wife often tells me. Uh, okay. Right. Well, no, I'm, I'm up for this. I think I think it would be valuable because we spend a lot of time looking at the, the newest things and getting excited about Kickstarters and the, the pre-production PDFs of, of glorious new editions of things that we like. And and actually, there is a there's a glorious old history to this hobby. And there was a time before podcasts and uh, before internet forums and, well, before the internet for that matter, there was a time when there was only a couple of games in town. And um, what was it like back then, Gaz? Were you a whippersnapper of the 70s or was the 80s more your first decade of gaming love? The 80s was really my first decade of gaming love, to be fair. Although I was alive in the 70s for most of it. <laughs> and everything was in sepia tones. Yeah, I think that's... Um, <laughs> It's always something that I've got, like a not a tinge of regret, but a little thing in the back of my mind that I wasn't quite there at the start. I was yeah. alive in 1974 when Dungeons and Dragons came out, but I kind of would have liked to be about 10 years older, so I was playing it as well when it came out, in a way. It doesn't make mm. any difference at all now, of course, but it just feels like I should have been there from the start. Well, and also, our international listeners, this will come as some shock, we're not Americans, so we weren't even in the in the country of origin for most of this stuff either so like with a bunch of stuff in the 70s the uk was well it was a very very different place and we had to wait for stuff to come in on the boat didn't we so oh, i yeah. think pro probably we, we probably couldn't have been there at the very very start because until until uh ian livingstone and steve jackson out of a very different games workshop back in the day until they imported D D into the uk and europe there probably would have been very very difficult to be a role player in the uk so I think original D&D came out in, what, 74? Yeah. But it was going to be a good four or five years, I think, before you could walk into shops and buy stuff um, in our country, at the very least. Yeah, I think it was 8081, arguably. My last year of primary school, when I actually did something that was... I had X1 Isle of Dread in my hands, I think. <laughs> um, so that's probably a little bit after the games we want to talk about. But I think... We're venerable enough that others look upon us, the, the young whippersnappers of today, look at us as the old grandfathers of the game almost. There's, there's yeah. few people that are older than us and playing, just by virtue of the, the hobby, I think. So, 
we're going to start with Dungeons and Dragons, aren't we? I think people might try and go back to Chainmail and, and other things and other precursors and talk about all kinds of things that could be considered a role-playing game. Let's not mm-hmm. get into Dallas RPG again. That was quite enough of that dragon me. But uh, let's stick with 1974 as the starting point. Uh, and there was only Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Yeah, bonkers. And it's really, really peculiar to think of a world that doesn't have Dungeons and Dragons in it. Um, and it, and that world absolutely existed. And, and for a very, 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 very long time, I'm going to say up until, well, there was a bit of a spike in the 80s. And then I think there's, we're in the middle of a spike now of mainstream acceptance. This this phenomenon has never been much more than a cult craze at best. So it was never it was never the big sort of cultural sweep that sometimes we think that it might be. I mean, it's fifty years to build up a brand with D and D, but from from the off, it was a bit of a sore away success, but on its own terms. I mean, mm. it, it invented a whole new genre. Um, and video gamers of today, you have levels and hit points thanks to this game. Those things didn't exist. Imagine a world where levels and hit points and experience points just didn't exist so they all came from the imagination of a couple of guys um over in america and that original dnd i mean i was slightly too young for that as well i was born in 68 uh, and got my start in gaming in well i think it was the first year i went to secondary school and i reckon that was 79 and that would have been september 79 so we're right at the death of the decade um but that still feels like in the uk we were around for the sort of first wave of thing but in that time dnd had already spawned a few well, they would have been imitators. In the nicest sense of the word, they had to have been imitators at that point. And I don't think anybody knew that this was going to go on to spawn what it did. No. I mean, we could we could probably run several episodes just on D&D, but I feel like we've done mm-hmm. it enough justice in recent times, having spoken to some of the, the current designers and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. We, we sort of did a tongue-in-cheek seminar at, at Dragon Meet this year, didn't we, and saying, is, is there a little mm. bit of D&D DNA and everything, and um, I'm not sure everybody took the, the seminar in the spirit with which it was intended, <laughs> uh, but but I think it's true to say that it, it did kick everything off. I don't think anybody can yeah. argue that that you know other things have existed in Vampire without any knowledge at all that D&D was around, or, or its precursors. Yeah. It's definitely the start of it. Yeah, when you when you think about if you try and define a role playing game by by what you see happening uh, when people play it, and I know that there'll be exceptions to this. Of course, we get that already, but broadly speaking, you'll have a bunch of players, and you'll have a, a games master or a dungeon master. It would have been called back then, and that was a bit of a weird thing to have one person kind of like the umpire and the storyteller and the referee and the the host all in one person, but not actually in some ways playing the game, and then a bunch of other people who were playing. As a team, I mean, it just wasn't Monopoly or Cluedo <laughs> from from the off. And you think about some of the practices that happened, like uh, there was no board. Um, yeah, we might have had some graph paper and maybe some lead minis, but really no board. And the bit that always blew my parents' minds when I tried to describe it to them when I was starting out in the hobby was that it didn't have any end. There wasn't a winner or a loser. That's true. Yeah. Now, every role-playing game still does that thing, don't they, where they try and define what gaming is. But that little list of... No board, no winners or losers, a GM, and the game can go on forever. I thought those those were like magic rules because no other game had ever, ever had that. Up until then, it was Connect Four, games of gin rummy with your grandma, and you know maybe a game of Risk, maybe if you were feeling quite fruity and you knew someone who was sophisticated and older. But you know, family games were just, they were not this. They were not this at all. So it, it totally invented a whole new category of stuff. 
um, and some games had to come along quite quickly afterwards to to do something different within that. But at that point, we had statistics and polyhedral dice and a GM and 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 adventures to go on and advancement, and they're still there in games getting released in 2019. You know, a brand new game will come out. I think you played Mothership, wasn't it, this weekend? That's right. Yeah. And it's got elements of all those things. If not all of those things, it's still still from the same t- same template. 45 years on. Incredible. Yeah, and uh, well, some of the other games I played, which is OSI style, is Owl Hoot Trail, which is cowboys, but with a sort of D&D system, and you have orcs and elves and stuff like that in it, which segues me nicely into 1975 with an explosion of at least four games on the, on the, <laughs> on the heels of Dishon Dragons, one of which produced by uh, Gygax and uh, Brian Bloom was Boot Hill. Yeah, never which played was, it. Which is coming. Have you not? Oh, wow. No. Nope. Uh, well, with the, the Northern contingent of the Smart Party, there's Dan Pete at Al. I'll have to get you, get you talking to them over a whiskey because they've played no end of Boot Hill. No, I had no idea. I mean, I, I like cowboy stuff. I like it a lot. And, that, and I probably waited till Deadlands before I got my proper cowboy stuff on. It's... um. I mean, don't forget, mate, I was a school child in 1979. I couldn't just go and buy loads of stuff. <laughs> Boot Hill was there, but um, but I, I probably picked up one of the other things you're going to have in your list. And cowboy gaming just passed me by a lot. Despite, I'm going to say that as a young lad, I watched all of the cowboy movies. Because there was only three channels on the telly in the 70s, but they were all on Sunday afternoons. Uh, True Grit, um, Magnificent Seven. You could reel them all off. Those were brilliant, brilliant films. There was a lot more of those around than there was of, say, uh, fantasy games with with parties of adventurers going into dungeons. That didn't really make it onto Sunday afternoon telly in my house. It was all Second World War and cowboys. Yeah, exactly. So well, not just films. You had the Elias Smith and Jones and, you know, High Chaparral, Bonanza, all yeah. that kind of stuff. I'm not exactly sure on the years of which came when, but there's definitely a surfeit of cowboy-based stuff. Um, and that gave certainly young minds at that time the chance to kind of relive those shootouts, the high noon type shootouts and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. I think to this day, there's still like a big folder somewhere in one of our attics that's just like a telephone directory full of dead characters because there was a, a mark of it was like the, just the sheer number of characters that died, whether it was a shot, big 50 buffalo rifle or a, a gunfight in a saloon or something <laughs> like that. Uh, but that was probably a different way of playing because in D&D, like, you, you tried like anything to keep your character alive. And clung to yeah. those D four hit points you got as a wizard at first level, like life itself. But uh, yeah, that that was like straight away a different way of doing something, and that you didn't really care as much about your character surviving or going on the mystical quest. It was more about the the visceral action there and then, and, and replaying what you saw on the TV screens. And right, I suppose the other thing about it as well is it uses two ten sided dice as percentiles, and that was like a core of the system. So we've already moved away from a D20 with the next publication to come back from Gygax. So yeah. if you imagine with D&D, you first of all get that full set of dice, but really just using them for damage, and you roll a D20 for most things, or hit points True. or whatever. But you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There was so much more that could be done with those platonic solids. It was interesting to see straight away a different type of rolling dice for a resolution mechanic, yeah. I think. Yeah, and that's um, and once you've got a second game out, then you are a games company. Mm-hmm. And uh, TSR, uh, which doesn't exist anymore, um, and there have been books written about TSR, good books too. I'd, I'd recommend uh, "Playing at the World" by John Peterson if you want the absolute skinny on the history of the hobby. It goes into uh, 
quite academic uh, and extremely thorough revision of all of history that you can find for it and he's done an amazing job and better than we could ever do in this cast but the history of TSR is definitely something that's produced academic works as well as a rip-roaring read and we won't get into it this time round but the financial shenanigans involved in that business were something else <laughs> and <laughs> but you know Gygax has, has at this point then he's got a, a games company and two games out with his name on the front which is two more than anybody else in the entire history of humanity has managed by this point absolute rockstar <laughs> I think the one last thing about Booty Hill to mention before we scurry on to the next one uh, is there's no alignment either because D and D back in the day had a, you know alignment system was a core part of it about whether you were good mm-hmm. or bad and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, so Booty Hill suddenly became freeing because there weren't necessarily good guys or bad guys. It was up to you to make, decide for your character, yeah. and it's it's just interesting to reflect back on that because up until that point you kind of gave your character an alignment and that was how you had to play them in your head mm-hmm. or certainly mm-hmm. how we played them at the time anyway so here's one I, I've never played but people wax lyrical about let's see if you've had a go Empire of the Petal Throne uh, no of it never played it <laughs> so, no. and I think it's probably the the most recognisable unplayed game in history of role playing games because <laughs> uh, I know all about it Professor M.A.R. Barker right so yep. he writes this incredible world uh, to the level of Tolkien and beyond with the level of depth and thoroughness that he applies to his world and uh, it's an incredible setting and very different to kind of Western European fantasy which was all about like you know um, stuff with cavaliers and knights and lonely wizards with beards and quarterstaffs this was is much more sort of esoteric and I know that it had a following early on but then I've never, ever seen a copy of it available for sale. And it's come out in loads of different revisions since. And I know that people do play it. And I know that there's a really good scene, um, a bit of an underground independent scene, really, for people who still play EPT. And I reckon there's probably some gaming groups who started back then and are still going. But that, that game's always been an absolute bitch to buy. I've never been able to pick <laughs> up a copy. It's, <laughs> it's always been either rare or expensive or both. And... Um, and I'm just, <laughs> I feel like I don't, there's a big gap in my gaming knowledge, and it is Empire of the Petal Throne. Everything I know about it, I read in White Dwarf, and uh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sketchy. I know there was a combat oriented board game called War of Wizards that came right. out, and I think I played that. I'm pretty sure it's card based mechanics, and I played it with my two friends because it was one of the games mm. you could play with three people, and we were like three wizards all fighting each other. I think. Yeah. I might be remembering a different game. I don't know. I know there's lots of um, Tecumel fans, which is the kind of world, I guess. But there's a funny accent yeah. over the E. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right. It feels like exactly. one of those games that's kind of like, I don't know. It's for people who smoke French cigarettes or something. They've got a certain niche yeah. and a certain sophistication of a certain thing that they're a refined taste, perhaps, or palate. I don't know. I don't want to compare it no... with eating rotted chalk, but it feels like it's a delicacy <laughs> of a certain palate. And I've just never had the Too pleasure. rich for my blood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it's uh, notable for having a setting, because, of course, Dungeons & Dragons only really had a default setting until Greyhawk came along. But as a, as a game, that was packaged um, really based on its setting. And so that was that was the start of all of those massive 300-page hardbacks that, <laughs> that are crusting up game store shelves as we speak of... Um, Here's my imaginary world and everything you want to know about all the cultures and the basket weaving and the travel times and all of that kind of stuff. So it really set a precedent for that much. I do know that. Um, 
it's... I'd I'd like to play in a game of Empire of the Petrophone. I really would, but my goodness, it, I I get the feeling it's like Glorantha on steroids, and I have enough trouble getting into that. So. <laughs> I think it's responsible for a lot of fantasy heartbreakers. I think get permission yeah. for later people to come and do it. I don't know. So we've got D and D, which is ostensibly a fantasy world, I guess. We've got cowboys. Yeah. We've got this brand new setting in rich micro detail. The the obvious thing to come on the back of that. Uh, is on guard a role playing game set in seventeenth century France because that was the the dish that was missing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but this is a good game. This is a really good. game. It is actually um, good. Yeah, yeah on guard is good, and and I to this day don't know why there isn't more of this kind of stuff around. Apart from that, we've had to wait for I suppose lace and steel maybe, but. Things like Seventh Sea first time around, which was trying to be a swashbuckler's game at the same time as it was trying to be a pirate's game. Hmm. I don't know why we haven't got more musketeer stuff. I was talking earlier about how we saw a lot of cowboy films growing up as kids. My favourite films of that era were the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers, the Richard Lester films. Correct. Yeah. Uh, that had Michael York as D'Artagnan um, and the late great Roy Kinnear bumbling around on a donkey yes. as Planchet. So those were incredible films. And, and that's what I wanted to do in my role-playing games was have sword fights on a frozen pond and have Faye Dunaway come and like poison me in some horrible way. And just uh, there, there weren't... You didn't get enough of that playing D&D-style games. It was the one thing that I couldn't really do with my D&D rule set. I couldn't get that kind of sword fighting stuff going on because it was much more about magic. It still is to this day. Yeah. So I couldn't really get into the thrust and parry stuff that I wanted. So On Guard was, I think it's notable because it gets into that Alexander Dumas kind of um, swashbuckling sense of adventure that, that I still yearn for in my role-playing games. So it, although being very, very, very early, and I think probably overlooked because it was going to get trampled to death by the other big games <laughs> around at the time, it was a good thing to have. Yeah, and it went... It's- like being reprinted as, or fourth edition rather, as recently as two thousand and five, which I think was last decade, but was actually two decades ago. <laughs> but to say it came out in nineteen seventy five originally, to to get another spin out thirty years later is pretty good going actually. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, uh, it's still worth a look. I would say I think On Guard is an overlooked classic. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think probably what was. Uh, a relative big boy at the time, although it seems to have faded somewhat, and although come back a little bit recently, uh, Tunnels and Trolls was kind of another big mm. one of 1975, which yeah. uh, was Kent Andre, a flame buffalo fame, and um, it just took. It was a bit like D and D, but less serious. I guess is like the elevator pitch yeah. used for it. It had spells like "Take that, you feed," and called them all kinds of daft stuff, um, and had. Weird and wonderful adventures, and you did everything by rolling a bunch of d6. Mm-hmm. It seemed to yeah. simplify things, take them less seriously almost, but had cool stuff like Lynn Stanforth art, certainly a black and white sketch drawings, I remember from the colour of um, a couple of the adventures and the internals as well, which were really evocative. Um, and I've got, I don't know, I mean, two minds about Tunnels and Trolls. What do you think before I start going off down a rabbit hole somewhere? <laughs> Um, well, if, to get the real skinny on this, um, hop over when you finish listening to this podcast. Go and listen to the Grognard Files. Our mates over there have done a good couple of episodes on Tunnels and Trolls and really insightful ones as well uh, with the guys who wrote it and some big fans of the game. And, and, and I know it's got its adherence. Um, my opinion on Tunnels and Trolls has formed very early on because it was, but for an accident, it could very well have been the first role-playing game I ever played. 
and I missed out on that by uh, I don't know a bit of five seconds. Mm. So <laughs> let me take you back that to like September nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. Please do. <laughs> so I was a young whippersnapper then. I'd just gone to secondary school, so I'd gone up to big school. And I'd moved house as well, just the other end of my village. But it was me and my mates from primary school had gone up into the big boys' world. And um, and I'd spent my entire youth running around in the fields of Essex, because it was all fields then, uh, basically watching cowboy movies, watching Three Musketeers movies. But what me and my mates used to do for fun as little boys and girls was we would pretend to be in Second World War skirmishes in the fields. We'd like use sticks for sten guns and um, throw bits of mud at each other and yell grenade and all of that kind of stuff and just, you know, disappear all day and come in when our mum was shouting across the fields at night, like everyone did in the 70s. It was glorious. So, But what we did was we called that game just generically war. Yeah, That's what it meant when you were Tommies and Jerrys and we went out to play war. And we did that for like eight, nine hours a day. <laughs> and um, with no structure to it whatsoever. So it's a bit like in the front of the role-playing games when they go, do you remember those kids you used to play, like cops and robbers? But it's like that, but with rules. So when I found out going to big boy school that there was a war club, like, and it was called that, a war games club, it was. And uh, I signed up for that immediately with my friend Nick. And, um, <laughs> and I genuinely thought that I would push open the door. And all I could think of is how on earth are they going to like, you know, run around with like mud grenades and sticks in a classroom? Because classrooms aren't that big. I mean, we used to use whole fields and rivers and make dams and stuff and, you know, be basically camping out for days. I don't know how they're going to pull this off in the history room. And uh, <laughs> so when I walked in and saw loads of blokes from the sixth form with scientific calculators and loads of bits of paper everywhere and bits of cardboard and you could have heard a pin drop, I thought, are we in the right room? <laughs> yeah. And my mate, my mate Nick said, I don't think we're in the right room. So we stepped outside and looked at the front of the door again and it said War Games Club. So then we went back in and went, oh, it must be it then. And one kid had pushed past us on the way in. So we said to him, is this the War Games Club? And he went, yeah. And he walked in in front of us, and he took the last spot at the Tunnels and Trolls table. Ugh. So, because so, <laughs> then I had to find someone to like look up from their GM screen. There were three games going on, and one of them was legitimately a war game. I came to find out later with miniature soldiers on a, a overturned Subutio pitch. So they were pushing Napoleonics around or something like that. And there was two tables doing the newfangled role-playing stuff. I later found out the war gamers in the corner were getting really snarky about it because they had a legitimate war gamers club, but like all war games clubs in the late 70s, have been taken over by this new fad and people were playing Dungeons and Dragons instead. So anyway, I got this GM to like acknowledge me and uh, and he said, I think there's a space over there. And that's where I saw the fellow who pushed in front of me sit down and that I found out was a Tunnels and Trolls game. So I missed my seat at that one. He goes, well, I'll tell you what, roll up a character for this one and you can play in my game. And he handed me the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Player's Handbook. And I went off with my mate Nick and we went off to another table and rolled up a character and um that was my first experience was rolling up a character for advanced Dungeons and dragons but if it hadn't been five seconds difference i'd have sat down to play tunnels and trolls and all i could think was well at least i got to play the advanced game <laughs> so, <laughs> and that colored my opinion of tnt for years <laughs> afterwards yeah, because it just looked like the comedy basic game for kids, and I wanted to be with the big boys and the studious ones, and the ones who were doing A levels, and it just looked all sophisticated and grown up. And I might not have been chucking grenades at each other and shouting "Got in Himmel" and Hanhock, but I got introduced to role playing games, and it was magical and amazing. 
and that meant that just like everybody else I can say D&D was my first game but it very very nearly wasn't mm. and that Tunnels and Trolls game I remember they did a lot of they did a little laughing which seemed to break the mood entirely I'm not sure what that was doing in the War Games <laughs> Club <laughs> um, so, yeah. I became friends with those guys later on but I never got into TNT I, I couldn't I couldn't get past the comedy elements sorry I was really po-faced back then <laughs> That's right. That's, I'll forgive you. You might not have been on this podcast if you if you'd sat in that chair. Who knows where we'd be? We may never have met. <laughs> true. Your life could have been so much That's better. True. We are like much else. It was uh, Mercer's Hardware Store on Northgate in Blackburn where I uh, bought Tunnels and Trolls with a nice yellow cover and uh, yeah. the Complete Dungeon of the Bear by Jim Verticamas Bear Peters, uh, which came in like a little <laughs> folder thing with punched holes in it. So I had to get some of those. Yeah. Do you remember those like green? You probably have still haven't the skill. Like green bits of string yeah. with two plastic bits on them that you put through. Holes. That's right. Yeah, like little shoelaces kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to get a couple of them so I didn't lose any pages up my newly bought adventure with my pocket money. Um, but yeah, like I said, the Liz Danforth that drew me in. It sounded cool. It read well. Um, and, and unlike you in your room full of people, I got into Tunnels and Trolls because it had a lot of solo adventures. And mm-hmm. I didn't have a gaming group per se initially. So I had a lot of hours of lonely fun. Playing my tunnels and trolls by myself, frankly, yeah, which is fine. Yeah, yeah. But um, it is a little bit more lightweight, <coughs> excuse me, than D and D, which felt more structured. Uh, the system, there's bits to like, like it has luck as a one of the stats rather than wisdom. Yeah, which you use for like saving throws and stuff like that, which makes sense. Are you lucky or not? Great, mm-hmm. I'm down with that. But the core of the system was about running a big bunch of D6s against the monster rating of the creature you were fighting, which had a bunch of 6s. And the number of dice it got, depending on how big its monster rating was, which was just hit points as well. So when you started beating it up, it just quickly went into a death spiral. The monster gets fewer and fewer dice as its hit points go down, and it just dies. So it's a bit of an odd game that you meet something, and it might be really difficult, and you're on a knife edge for a short while, and then you just inevitably win. Or it might just really mess you up, and <laughs> at the end—that's the end of your character. So I did kind of like TNT, but even then, to my gamer brain, something told me like this is wrong. There's just too much of a death spiral in this game, and you can't play it out with excitement. Yeah, I've come back round to play quite a bit of TNT in my time, actually, and um, and there there is lots to admire about it. I like that the character sheets were absolutely tiny. I mean, there's not much to it, realistically. No, um, I, I kind of bounced off the idea of playing a pixie or, and all of that kind of stuff. It oh, was, it yeah, was quite happy to have you have a pixie and a bugbear and a demon and a dragon as an adventuring party. And I think what's notable about Tunnels and Trolls is that it's, it's clearly, and you can tell from the name, it's clearly a reaction to D&D. So I think it was maybe, arguably, the first game that was written once D&D was out there. Mm. So D&D invents the genre, TNT is the the next wave of like, okay, I've seen that, and I know that Ken St. Andre will say that he looked at D&D and thought, well, I could do that better. Yeah. And and who's, who could blame him for that? And loads of us have continued in that vein ever since for the next 40-odd years. So Tunnels and Trolls is a reaction to the main event, and, and for its time, it was a plucky little contender and went for a very, very long time, and, and still has its players now and its adherents, and I see Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes is back in Kickstarter, and that's the same engine, same company. Yeah. So it's still trucking along. And you know what? I actually, it's taken me a long time to get to this sort of place, but I think I probably would play Tunnels and Trolls again now as a one-shot. If I saw it at a convention, 
I'd give it a go and I think I'd be I think I'd enjoy it for what it is whereas at the time I thought all of the stuff that's appealing to me about this hobby is just um I'm not seeing it over there with the comedy game mm. and I, I was kind of I was too, far too much of a snob about it I readily admit that now but it put me off playing that and Toon and Paranoia and all the other comedy games ever. I've never really found them funny so <laughs> no, don't do those <laughs> yeah I think for my money Tuzz and Trolls isn't isn't like Toon or Paranoia and stuff I think it it takes itself a little bit more seriously yeah although the, like you call a spell take that you fiend you, you're setting your stall out a bit but I don't think it intentionally tried to be hilarious if you know what I mean no whereas some of the games uh, yeah. say that they I, I, I think it's just light hearted I would say maybe I don't know that's fair that's fair but I got my my tunnels and trolls came to me in the form of grim tooth traps Oh, right. which was okay. a very early yeah. supplement which I loved reading yeah. uh, they were ingenious I mean stupid things you wouldn't put them in real adventures now you wouldn't have any players left after five minutes but they were really ingenious but they're presented by Grimtooth himself and he was just drawn as a cartoon mm. so I, I always thought it was a bit comic booky because yeah, okay, <laughs> cause it enough. was really well <laughs> I, I offer you two to you as comparison then from 1976 Bunnies and Burrows <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the uh, the alliteration and the ampersand are running rife in the hobby by this point. So half the games out are called something and something <laughs> uh, innovation. But this was um, great. Okay, let me let me take you back to the seventies, to the three day week, and to uh, the Sex Pistols, and to everybody smoking on the tube stations. Oh, uh, the other thing that happened that will scar any 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 of our generation, mate, water shit down. Yeah. absolutely scarred me for life right and every kid saw that at some kind of some misguided head teacher thought this would be a good thing to put on at school <laughs> which is all the primary school kids running out of there sobbing because <laughs> there was like swear words in it and myxomatosis and carnage the digger saying oh yes yeah oh man alive fiver no <laughs> so, so i couldn't I couldn't play bunnies and burrows. Plus, it had the word bunnies on the front, and it just again wasn't serious enough for me. It, it didn't have advanced written on the cover at this point, mate. It probably wasn't going to get a game out of me. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't go anywhere. Near. I was just kind of like mentioning it in the if we're talking about whether games are comedy or not. I think just the title of that just put me right off straight yeah. away. Um, now I've played quite a bit of um, Pendragon in my time. Yes, but there's a game called Knights of the Round Table, which I've in a little bit of research, discovered, but I can't find anything about it apart from the fact that no. it was vaguely Arthur's Camelot and you use cards as a mechanic. Okay, I just thought I'd run right. it past you and see if you heard of it. Um, no, I haven't, and and that'll be because again, this is all pre-internet, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm sure you were doing the same as me, mate. But if it didn't get covered in White Dwarf, it might as well have never have existed. And I think that, actually, and I don't think that White Dwarf did cover it, and Games yeah. Workshop didn't import it because I presume it was imported. Yeah, it's American. So, yeah. Oh, there you go. So I'd, I would never have seen it, mate, because because everything everything came to us via Games Workshop and into other shops and stuff. Then I mean, we, you know, there was shops springing up all over the place. There was a time I could have told you from any city in the UK what the game store was in it. Yeah, um, that's not true anymore. But um, uh, but I would go into those places and scour the shelves. I didn't see that one, so I can only presume that nobody brought it into the country. No, please tell me I'm wrong, dear listeners. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same as you. In my in my youth, it was a matter of buying a train ticket and going to Manchester or somewhere even further afield 
maybe spending somewhere between 25 and 40 miles on a, on a train to go to the place mm. where I, I knew there was a shop, or at least there was last time I was there, and I hoped, fingers crossed, it was still in existence by the time I got <laughs> yeah. there with my packed lunch and my flask of tea, and that it hadn't shut or moved, because then I'd have no chance. <laughs> we didn't have Google Maps back there or anything like that, did we? we just, had, <laughs> just had word of mouth and hope in our hearts. Well, yeah. Let's... Yeah, mine was postal orders to his DVM games. <laughs> postal orders, kids. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have to get my dad to write me a cheque, and he'd say, what are you yeah. spending your money on this rubbish for? Every time. So yeah. he wasn't just like even asking to write the cheque for me, and I gave him pocket money. He would then berate me for spending said pocket money on the thing I wanted. It wasn't yeah. a happy childhood sometimes. Anyway, <laughs> enough of that. Let's get back to happy times. Um, so I'll chuck a couple more at you and see if you've heard of them, because I'm not really... Or fair with these either. Uh, Metamorphosis Alpha, which yep. has had an addition as recently as 2011. Yep. Yeah, played that. What played it quite a bit. On earth is this, Baz? It seems to have aliens on the front. So, it does, yeah. So, this is the first science fiction role playing game. So, it gets, you know, kudos for that. Um, and like every other science fiction role playing game, then or since, <laughs> I don't know. I just never really took off in the way that fantasy did. We've already got a few fantasy games out by this point, haven't we? And yeah. one about rabbits. So <laughs> it's been beaten completely. And uh, Metamorphosis Alpha was uh, the brainchild of Jim Ward, um, who is one of that circle of late Geneva guys. Uh, you would might know him. If you spell his name backwards, it becomes the name of a spell in AD&D. Drawmage's Magic Summons. So it's Jim Ward backwards, fact fans. Um, anyway, Metamorphosis Alpha is about a giant spaceship called Warden, and uh, you are like a colonist on this giant spaceship, and you've been in a deep freeze for so long that everything inside it's gone mutated, and the plants chase you down the corridors and stuff. So it's not strictly sci-fi generic as D&D was to fantasy. It's very much about a single concept, but a quite a good, you know, decent concept and quite weighty, I suppose. And um, it's, uh, it's it's kind of a bit post-apocalypse, I suppose. And it has never really gone away. It's come back loads and loads of times like all those original TSR games have. Um, whether that just be uh, put into Dungeon Magazine as a supplement or whether it's come out in its own new box or its D20 version. Um, it's never completely gone away. Um, so for a game that doesn't really appear to have a lot of legs, it seems to have a lot of legs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know why you heard of it, and that's because it was reviewed by In Livingstone in White Dwarf 1. There you go. So that'd be right. why you... Uh... About. And he, yeah, in a sign of things to come, he printed some of his own additional rules as well. So this is where homebrew started <laughs> and hacking games straight away. Yeah, here's my review yeah. of this game, and then here's what's wrong and some more rules. <laughs> well, yeah, for me, it failed the comedy test as well because it was mutations was it was an immediate uh, was an immediate reason for people to like go. I'm a living cactus. Oh, are you though? Oh, God. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I was just too po-faced. I feel really bad about this now. It feels like I've never had any fun in my gaming. I do have fun in gaming, genuinely, but never at the never because the rules tell me it's got to be funny. And and Metamorphosis Alfie had that veneer about it as well. So, yeah, I was a bit elitist about it. Gave it the swerve early on. Yeah, don't worry. In another game year, we've got uh, the hard sci-fi game that brought them coming. So you've got that to look forward to. In the meantime, yes. though... <laughs> Um, monsters, monsters! Exclamation mark! Exclamation mark! <laughs> didn't buy it. Didn't buy it. No. Exclamation mark! Exclamation mark! <laughs> it's uh, it's from the same team that did Tunnels and Trolls, so it's Kensington Andre, yeah. Danford did the art, Jim 
inverted commas bear peters i don't know why that amuses me so much but i, like that. <laughs> I don't it, know why either it feels like it's somebody's <laughs> made their own nickname up it doesn't feel like everybody yes. else calls him bear it feels like he's going around calling himself bear and hoping people take it up and they do Please. Is that like when our mate Pete calls himself Maverick and we all laugh? Saying, <laughs> no, you're not allowed to give yourself a nickname, mate. <laughs> yeah, maybe. We've got wrong nicknames for him anyway. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll move on from that then. I don't even know what it is. I've just seen pictures on the internet and I know it's from the same guys. Um, I feel like we're failing in some ways. Cause the, no, cause, we're about to get to the good stuff. Because they did starfaring and some other bits of Flying Buffalo and I think it was just there. Uh, like you say, unless it came over, unless it was successful in America enough that people bought it in the UK, we're not going to have encountered it too much, are we? But I think the, the, no. the next sort of biggie, something that people still play to this day, I know that for a fact, Chivalry and Sorcery comes up next on my list. Yes. Yeah, So because the world was crying out for another fantasy role-playing game at this point. Absolutely. So <laughs> One with an and in the middle of the title as well, but crucially, no alliteration. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's where they brought them all, wasn't it? It was, it was something and something, but starting with different letters. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, again, you've played Pendragon mm. uh, since. So this is a... Uh, Chivalry and Sorcery was um, another reaction to D&D, and... Uh, and People had all kinds of reactions to D&D. So Ken and Andre thought, I can do this better and it will be easier to play. I think he wouldn't mind me saying that. He went for an easier version of D&D. Chivalry and Sorcery took the opposite approach of thinking, it's not realistic enough. <laughs> and from my memory, it was insanely in-depth and, and sort of spawned a bunch of games um, that were just uh, they're almost impenetrable. But that was taken up as a challenge by some of the physics students who were playing in the war games club that I was still attending. Because <laughs> um, it was, the, and I must admit, I mean, there was no women or girls they would have been at that point. There were no female gamers at all in in our school or in my entire sphere of knowledge. Just none. And the boys were of a particular bent, I suppose. Yeah. They were sort of studious and specky and spotty and... Uh, not great on the whole social skills thing. Proper nerds, of which I was, you know, pleased to consider myself one. Mm. Realistically, just was, and um, you know, we weren't like you know the popular kids or anything else like that. It was just like you see in the movies with the whole geek stereotype stuff. And chivalry and sorcery meant that if you liked your medieval history and you liked to know about pauldrons and <laughs> nose guards and that kind of thing, this was the game for you, and you could actually use your Texas instrument scientific calculators to some use. So um, not for me. It wasn't my game. Um, again, I, I, I didn't have the money to buy all the things I wanted to buy. That's a fact. That's true. And I didn't. I didn't. Chivalry and sorcery would have been a big, luxurious, expensive thing to get, and I didn't. I knew I didn't have the knowledge to to be able to get the most out of it. I wouldn't have been able to sell it to my mates. Yeah. Did you play the hard stuff like that then? Because you you always liked a bit of history, if I remember rightly. Yeah, so it was intriguing to me. I think the thing is that at the time when I was playing games, it was kind of like partly on the way to school, uh, partly on your knee in assembly, and you know at lunch times while people were trying to kick footballs at you because you were the nerdy kids in the corner and not the sporty <laughs> kids who were kicking footballs. So anything that involved large amounts of effort and writing and <laughs> notes keeping and stuff was just doomed to failure, especially during winter when it was lashing mm. down and everybody had to like try and tie their anoraks together to protect the GM screen. Uh, so. Um, yeah, it was just too much. Um, I don't want to say bean counting, but just too much stuff to do to keep yeah. track. 
where you could play D and every new one they were doing it basically. So yeah. I yeah. think Pendragon's where I really started getting into that kind of thing. But it is interesting again that it's another game that was like you know influenced by sort of twelfth century medieval France or something like that. <laughs> which seems to be getting a lot of a look in in the early 70s and I guess that's probably something to do with uh, the literature and stuff that game designers were reading because they yeah. probably weren't like now there's just this mass of fantasy like 10 part series and you've got Game of Thrones on TV and all this kind of stuff I guess back in the 70s you, you're just coming off the back of a lot of pulp uh, and it was a lot mm-hmm. of pulp sci-fi and things like that and you know cowboy books and all that kind of stuff but I guess where you got your fantasy stuff from was things like musketeer books and and that kind of thing. So there wasn't yeah. as much fantasy, just generic fantasy out there for people to dive into. So I guess the the sort of inspirations they had for writing the games was based on real novels rather than your stock fantasy. Not that I want to yeah, I don't want to denigrate fantasy authors now, but I just feel like there's there's a much broader field now than there was back in the time in the seventies. Yeah, culturally, I mean, all of you kind of a, uh, I mean, D and D came from all kinds of places, didn't it? But Lord of the Rings and Michael Moorcock among them, mm. and there's a tension between those two. But um, but yeah, but it came out of that kind of um, the the books that you would get from the library back then would have been like your, your children's illustrated classics would have been Robin Hood, Ivanhoe, that kind of thing, yes. really. Don Don Quixote. I mean, what we what we called classics now, and they were classics then. They were a little bit dry, and they were kind of written by grown-ups for kids rather than with kids in mind. They were educational, almost, I suppose. And and some of the games that were coming out around that time had that feel about them too. They were either silly and cartoony, like your your Tunnels and Trolls, or they were a bit sort of like, you know, good for you. <laughs> like Chivalry and Sorcery would felt a little bit like, you know, <laughs> like it's improving your mind somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it felt a little, I don't know. It maybe felt a little bit academic for me, boy. Yeah. But, and I think it got a crap review in White Dwarf as well, if I remember. Oh, right. that it killed it. Awful then. review. So, uh, but I might be mistaken that with Man, Melee and Magic, because I remember there was two sort of fairly similar kind of games and they, they didn't get through the open box uh, treatment very well. Right. Because they oh, weren't well. made by Games Workshop, so they didn't get good scores. <laughs> <laughs> The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new Smart Party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the Smart Party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! So there's um, there's there's definitely an effort. I think people saw that there was a, a missing science fiction uh, game in the market. Yeah. Uh, and the stuff that I'm really sketching, I don't think made it much in like Star Patrol and uh, Flash Gordon and the Avengers of Mungo or something like that and Space Quest and all these sort of uh-huh. games that are really passed me by. Uh, it was when the Little Black Books came out and Traveller, I think, that that's when yeah. science fiction really sort of first landed, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this this was a, a genre maker. So... Um... Science fiction, you, you were talking about all the books that were around. 
there was if you were, if you wanted to read fantasy fiction back then, you had your Moorcocks and you had your pulp stuff and all that kind of business. But I tell you what, I always got from my older cousins and from around my granddads and all, anyone in my family who read and passed their books down to me, they were all Isaac Asimov's. There was loads of science fiction, yeah, Larry Niven, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And some of it went way back to the 30s, 40s and, and 50s. But there was still a really big tradition of science fiction writing, which, to be honest, if you held a gun to my head now, I'd rather read a science fiction fiction book than a fantasy book, mm. realistically. So that was that was kind of deep and ingrained. Um, and because there was no fantasy around, not really. So when Traveller came along, I was absolutely bowled over by Traveller and I dropped money, some serious money on it really early on and I'll tell you what got me first mate and I'm sure I'm not alone in this the cover all black one red line horizontally across it and that beautiful brilliant bit of text about free trader Beowulf yeah it was just awesome it absolutely summed up everything you wanted from from uh, it was just worlds of imagination pull open the box it's just d6s which looked all sciency compared to like you know the big colourful polyhedrals with crayons on it that D&D gave you and three little black books which just looked like the sort of thing you could drop into your school bag and just study. Almost no art at all, which is bonkers when you think about what a modern role-playing book looks like. Um, and unfortunately, it was like reading the instructions to a VCR. <laughs> and I, I, tr- I have tried hard to enjoy Traveller over the decades. I have tried really hard to enjoy Traveller. Traveller does not make it easy to enjoy it. I know there'll be like, you know, loads of you out there now who play Traveller and love it and think it's the best thing ever. I always found it hard work. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, Star Wars came out. And I'm old enough to have gone and queued up for Star Wars and watched it in an actual cinema. And I know that people say you can do travel you can do Star Wars with Traveller, but you can't really, Not can really. you? Not really. And unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your viewpoint, Star Wars was what I was hoping for and it absolutely delivered at the cinema for me. And when I went back to Traveller, and I can't remember which one I got first, it, they may as well have been as different from each other as Boot Hill was from Metamorphosis Alpha. <laughs> they just didn't generate the same kind of things at all. And much as I like generating characters and making making characters fit onto like three or four lines of an exercise book, there was nothing to them. The idea of playing a 35-year-old was just <laughs> like, why on earth would I want to do that? <laughs> and now that I'm 50, I'd love to be 35 again. <laughs> yeah. What you wouldn't give her. <laughs> <laughs> I used to think Logan's oh. Run was a good idea, and people should be killed at thirty. I know. Yeah, I mean, there was good. There was good sci-fi around. I mean, this is all the years of like Star Wars and Close Encounters and Blake Seven, and and we always and we had the black and white serials as well with like Flash Gordons and Buck Rogers and all that kind of stuff. So there was loads of it around. I, I couldn't get me a drowned traveller. I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't figure out what on earth was actually going on, and I, I didn't really want to do the cargo stuff. And it, it nearly killed me, like doing freehand hex maps, because I didn't have access to a photocopier, mm. so I couldn't do all the stuff that I needed to do. And I wanted to go around in an X-wing, and it's just traveller ship combat didn't deliver that at all. No, <laughs> I just found it hard. Yeah, it is hard. I think it's a game you have to put work into. Uh, and I didn't get it at the time when I first started playing it. I remember playing for my mate who was kind of into role games, and his mate who was not so much. And we tried playing some traveller for a bit, and I went. Bit shit, this game, innit? As in the game I was running, and his mate went, Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was like, No, no, I'm enjoying it. And I was like, I think there's potentially something there, but it didn't give you a lot. 
I like, you know, I had um, they give you like the the triangles to make a, a, an icosahedron if you fold it all up and make like a D twenty out of it for a planet map and things like that. Yeah, and you had all these cool bits, and we had star maps, and they all had a sky raft for some reason to carry the kit on, even though I didn't know what the hell that meant or looked like. Uh, but it didn't tell you what to do. And it's like you could do anything you can mm. think of in science fiction, but then gave you no real. I don't get it. I'm with you. Like you look at the front of um, the Traveller book with a Mayday Mayday from the Beowulf free trade, and you think, yeah, cool, that's hooked me in. But then yes. it doesn't tell you like the rest of the book's nothing to do with that. Uh, and you have cut, no. you have cutlasses and things. It's like why do I have a cutlass? Why don't I have a laser sword? I don't understand. This doesn't seem to gel. Uh, and I'm, I'm the same as you in terms of reading lots of you know Philip K. Dick and Larry Niven and all those. I used to just go to the the library and get six books a week because that's the, the maximum mm. I was allowed to get. And then the next week I'll be back down to tread them in front of the six books and read shelf after shelf of this stuff. Uh, and it just felt compared to the literature that's out there and the movies and the TV series that this game wasn't telling me what to do. Like, how, how do I do mm. the things that I'm seeing and reading? Uh, and it wasn't really there. And I know there are a lot of adherents and the Traveller Con every year and all that kind of stuff. I just don't think the game itself told people what they should be doing. It's more about you can do anything you want and here's how to model star systems and intricate rules for making spaceships that are mm. sort of like hard sci-fi, if you will, in terms of getting all the the numbers right and what a planetary gravity is and things like this and if you're into doing all that that's great but from a pure gameable content point of view just a bit disappointing unfortunately yeah I couldn't get any adventures going and, that's I, and right, I bought yeah. some of the little adventures and the double adventures that you had to flip the book over to get to and um, they just looked a bit dry I, I, I wasn't very sophisticated I'll be honest I, I kind of I needed it to be like a dungeon where you could go left or right and you could like smell things down one way and light torches and go down the other way and just deal with things in a bit more kind of a structured manner. But, you know, floating around in space and worrying about your mortgage payments and uh, <laughs> checking that your, your cutlass was being worn on the right side because, I don't know, it it didn't really work for me and, and I, I regret that it didn't. Uh, I still think it's a gem of a little game in there and I, I really like the later versions and the Mongoose version of Traveller I think is stunning. I love it. But that original one was just... I kind of bounced off it. It was a bit too sterile. Yeah. And, and I was too young to notice that it was a 17th, 17th century Age of Sail game, really, <laughs> just but with fusion engines. And it was about that. Um, so I, I just I didn't... I, no. It, it was too rich for my blood. And unfortunately, I just think that D&D and Traveller, they, they became like two sides of two pillars for the entire hobby one for fantasy and one for science fiction. And both of them just sort of set some concrete rules in place that the genre was saddled with for years afterwards. And they're not actually generic role-playing games. They both set themselves out as being generic role-playing games, and they're not. And eventually, you play enough D&D, you realise it's very good at being D&D. And eventually, <laughs> if you play enough Traveller, you realise it's very, very good at playing Traveller, but you've got to buy into the Imperium and the No Faster Than Light and all of the stuff that goes with it, the just the assumptions, that they're so baked in that you couldn't... I just I don't believe you could play Star Wars using the Traveller rules. I couldn't anyway. I couldn't get a hand Solo out of it, no matter how I tried. No, I was trying to eat soup with a fork. I mean, you can do it, but like do something else instead. Uh, I, mm. I think, is, is it Elite... It was the old game. It's Elite Dangerous now. But yes. Back in there when it was just 
<laughs> just a black screen with white lines on, which represented a spare station in the ship, and you had to try and navigate it and wonder why you were rubbish at flying. <laughs> Largely because the user interface didn't let you see what the hell was going on. It was just dots on the screen. <laughs> but um, it feels like that's what Traveller was almost. It was like Elite, but the role-playing game mm. in that um, you have a space bus and you go to places and you sell things. And um, that uh, that kind of realistic world, in inverted commas, that it was emulating, which is fine if that's yeah. what you want. Uh, but I think I think you're right in saying that a lot of my peers and people I know kind of wanted to do more fun stuff than that. They wanted to play Star yeah. Wars or do something else, and it wasn't. That's not what it is. Um, so, like you said, it's been through several iterations and all kinds of stuff since. I, d- I really like T4 when it came out, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did a cool thing yeah. at Gen Con where you went and um, you could get dog tags when you bought it and you had to do six texts and then they'd um, they'd stamp it with your uh, universal profile. So it was like how much weight you could lift and how long you could hold your breath for for your endurance and things like that and a little IQ test to, to mark your IQ score and all these kind of things and see if you could juggle to get a deck score, all that kind of stuff. So there's some good marketing around mm-hmm. it. It was a good reinvention. Um, but yeah, like most of the adventures I played that were good with a GM could have played it as a fantasy game and were on a ship instead, as in like a sail ship. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I know there's a lot of adherence, but I think it just, um, in and of itself, I don't see where the, the cool stuff is. I think it's just a vehicle for doing mm-hmm. a certain type of game. But there you are. Yeah, I cu- we couldn't get any scenarios generated and we couldn't get any campaigns going and it just fizzled for our games group. And we tried. We all tried really hard. Sure. Okay then, let's, let's, let's move on. Have you heard of Bifrost? Uh, well, only from Thor comics, because no. <laughs> it's the I... name of the bridge that leads to Asgard. But as a gaming pro- production, nope. No, I hadn't. It was by a UK company, though. That's why I bring it up. Oh, um, okay. And it was, yeah, it it was in White Dwarf as well, apparently. I'm just reading now. Okay. <laughs> There's nothing like research for this show, is there? As you get to listen to us live <laughs> and look stuff up on the internet. It is nothing like research. <laughs> <laughs> well, it had rules for like character creation, combat as you'd expect, magic, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And you travel between different planes, apparently. But no, that's that's one that completely passed me by. I think this okay. this podcast is largely going to be for us to ask the re- the listeners to tell us what these games are. Do do write in, it certainly is, and send send us <laughs> send us information about what all this stuff is. So, what you will have heard of yeah. then? Let's let's move on to things we might be on slightly firmer ground with Gamma World. Yes. Now, um, for years, I got this mixed up with Metamorphosis Alpha. I, mm. I wouldn't be surprised if people still do that. They borrowed heavily. They, fe- they feel like, yes, and um, and Gamma World was about mutant animals running around on a post-apocalyptic Earth. Yes. Uh, but Gamma World sounds like sounds like the name of a great science fiction property. <laughs> and uh, but then you think, oh, hang on, oh no, it's post-apocalypse, really. And I suppose that is sci-fi, isn't it? But for me, sci-fi has to have spaceships, and Gamma World didn't really have that. Mm. It was about being a mutated badger instead, or a rabbit. <laughs> and um, it could be our world in Traveller, couldn't it? It's one that you might visit at it some point. Could be, yeah, it could be. So, I mean, I never really got into Gamma World for that reason, because again, comedy. <laughs> so, I didn't really want to be a porcupine with a grenade launcher. Although now, that sounds like a great thing. Where can <laughs> where do I sign up to be a porcupine with a grenade launcher? I have to buy the miniatures. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I got into Gamma World with Fourth Edition D and D, so like you know, uh, less than a decade ago, and, and that version of Gamma World um, really appealed to me. But 
it, like all of those TSR properties, it keeps being re revisited and brought back as a kind of a an antiquity and a kind of a legacy mechanics and like oh I bet everyone remembers the glory days of playing Gamma World. I think this was big in America. That's all I can put it down to. With a lot of this stuff, it just didn't translate. I'm sorry to buy Frost. I missed out on everything you had to offer me. I'm really sorry because I was reading about Gamma World and Metamorphosis Alpha, and I did know that it was in Dragon Magazine. Hmm. But Dragon Magazine, I never liked as much as White Dwarf. Yeah. It was totally different tone, and just didn't get it. And it would often talk about things that you couldn't physically see. Yeah, couldn't get them in my shops. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, Traveller came across again. Games Workshop brought it across. I bought the deluxe set, but um, Gamma World, I mean, it was for TSR, so it would have been available. A bit like Gangbusters and stuff later on, yeah. or Top Secret, but no, just no, no. I don't know what I was doing. I must. Have, I don't know what, what I was were you doing. doing your life? What was I doing? Well, I think. <laughs> I think the interesting point about it, I, I just raised, is that it, it was sort of very similar to D and D in terms of in year three to eighteen attributes and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it does make me wonder when we were sort of trying to tease out of our D and D designer guests somewhere a few weeks back about a science fiction D and D game. Whether this haunts them or something, because it, 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 it feels like this is the D and D attempt at a science fiction game, uh, and you know they're giving it the yes. setting and they've made it seem cool, and you can do all this crazy stuff, and it, it didn't like it's got its adherence again, but I don't think it really went anywhere. Certainly not like D and D did, uh-huh. or some of the other games. So I'm wondering, perhaps is this like has this burned people for years to come when you try and do science fiction that you'll get a, a small core of people who like absolutely love it, and the majority mm. of the gaming community sort of go oh, meh. Not really bothered. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true, mate. That's always been the case. I've spent all of this time, same as you have, looking for the great sci-fi game. Um, not sure it's ever been out there, really. There's been a few contenders, but... I mean, as an early clutch of games, I think we might be getting towards the end of the 70s now. I don't know what else you've got left on your list, but it's a peculiar-looking package, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'm probably going to skip quite a lot, because <laughs> I fear we're in territory of... I don't know what <coughs> this stuff is. Um... So yes, I will. There you go, listeners. You can fill in your own blanks. I want to move across to, to RuneQuest because I think that's the big important one that happens next in the 70s. Yes, definitely. Yeah, that's that for me, that was like number three. There was D&D, Traveller and RuneQuest and everything else was in the shadow of those three games. Rightly or wrongly because, you know, we don't get called Cthulhu till 1981 so it's outside of the decade, yeah. isn't it? Um, and Although I did, I started playing in '79 because I was a kid, like we all were then. That didn't mean that I was rushing out to buy the hot off the press releases. We were playing the games that had come out in the previous five, six, seven years. That's right. Yeah. Um, so that's I think that's something that often gets overlooked in retrospectives. Like in 1981, I don't think I played Call of Cthulhu because it was released then. But it takes a while to filter down yeah. and get into your gaming schedule and all the rest of it. So you're actually, you know, I've spent my time playing copies of games that have been around for a little while by that point, but they were new to me. So RuneQuest, when it dropped into my lap, was it probably been around for a little while. Again, it would have been Games Workshop, would have been the purple box for me, the sort of deep purple box yeah. um, that had rurik the wanderer in it and fangs which would have been their list of, of baddies and apple lane and loads of pamphlets if i remember rightly but uh, I, was, I know that wasn't the original rune quest that's not the the one that was released that you were talking about i don't think uh it more it, no but it more or less is so right. i had the original rune quest 2 was my first copy that i got 
Uh, but the only difference between that and the first ring quest was they put some errata in the front and back cover, so that that's right. Like yeah. all the contents yeah. were the same. Literally, they just used the inside covers to like write some extra notes and change a couple of bits. Uh, uh, okay. And I th- I'm pretty sure those rules went into that purple box that you were talking about. Uh, right. It wasn't until um, Avalon Hill got hold of Request that it started to change and became Request Three and it had fatigue points and things like that. But I think sure. pretty much in its early iterations, it was more or less that sort of 1978 Chaosium game, as was mm-hmm. um, with yeah. kind of like a character sheet that had like not dot matrix, but had, instead of like lines for which you wrote skill, it had like dot 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 and stuff like that. And That's it. it yes. Literally, we done on a typewriter and then photo started and put it in a book. It was. Like, that kind of hand put together sort of thing. Um, like RuneQuest was really good. It was like my second big renaissance. It was kind of sixth form when I really got into it, I think. And that was when mm-hmm. uh, one of the guys I knew then, his brother, his older brother had played it with his mates and they handed down loads of stuff. So we even had some of the like hard to get lead miniatures and floor mm-hmm. plans and these books that were well thumbed and falling apart and super sellotaped up to try and keep them together. Uh, but all kinds of good stuff like Cults of Prax, which is still one of the best role-playing supplements that's ever been produced, in my opinion. I mean, obviously, it's it has. We're still like we're forty years later, so the time has worn on it. But I think for the the idea and content and vision of producing a, a source book like that was really good. So RuneQuest yeah. was good as well. I think you mentioned before about some realism, and I think it tries to do that with the the fantasy tropes in terms of you know, mm-hmm. hit locations, and you might have like three hit points in your arm and a, a broadsword might do a d8 damage so you could easily get your arm chopped off <laughs> without and you didn't like level up it wasn't like D&D in the, where like by 10th level you could jump off cliffs even though it's a bit silly and gym yeah. shouldn't let you do that anyway but RuneQuest was you know you might have four hit points in your arm by the time you're a rune lord so it was always dangerous and really brought the myths uh, of the gods and things that walk the earth into the game itself uh, and as a whole weird and wonderful background, largely due to Greg Stafford spending time smoking peyote in Nevada, I imagine, or somewhere like that, and being in sweat lodges. Mm. But it, it was something, It was good to see another fantasy game that was properly radically different than D&D. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I bought it, and I, I really wanted to get into it, but what became apparent to me quite early on was that uh, the RuneQuest box set, which was a fairly big investment for me, wasn't really enough to play the game. I was always rubbish at writing my own scenarios. Um, so I always looked for games that had modules. And D&D was brilliant for that. And White Dwarf was brilliant for that, for giving you adventures to run. So I ran everything out of White Dwarf at least eight times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even they didn't have a huge amount of RuneQuest scenarios in there. And it became really apparent that, that what you needed was Cults of Prax and Cults of Terror and Troll Pack. Yeah. And Te- all of those, those great remote. things that yeah. always got... Yeah, they always got amazing reviews. And you could see that the guys in White Dwarf were moving away from playing D&D personally. Yeah. And they were getting really into RuneQuest. And, and it wouldn't be too long before they got into Call of Cthulhu as well. And, um, and, they, and you know, people were growing away from D&D and really looking for something new. And I suppose I was too. But I didn't land on RuneQuest. I, I think it was all up to me what got played. Because in my circle, there were some other people who sort of semi-GM'd, but really it was down to me. And if I didn't have it in my collection, it kind of never really got table space. And uh, and for one reason or another, I just didn't play that one. I'm struggling to think what on earth I was playing, because I don't remember playing that much D&D, but I suspect I was. I suspect I was playing a, a kind of a, a mixture between AD&D and basic D&D, because that was how everybody kind of did it. Like, um, 
the Monster Manual, the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Player's Handbook didn't come out together. They were years apart. And Basic D&D, or the Holmes edition, and then replaced by the Moldvay edition, they all kind of got blended into each other. And, um, and I think I was doing that. And, uh, yeah, I remember flicking through White Dwarf and just skipping the RuneQuest pages because if you didn't play RuneQuest, you couldn't really take much from it. So I never saw it as like a... I never saw it as a place to get ideas from because it was so glaranthery. I liked reading some of the short stories about Griselda and Lucky Eddie yeah. and the stuff in um, in The Big Rubble. But um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I never really took the baboons and stuff into my games. It was it was stuff that I would go back round to if I ever got a RuneQuest game off the ground and it just didn't happen. Yeah, I think, well, as I say, I think we were lucky because uh, Rick's older brother had bought all this stuff as it came out. Right. So we had the pay with some big rubble box sets and the Borderlands box set and all that stuff. So we it just had like tons of adventures and played through them all. You couldn't find these things yeah. in the shops. Uh, and for years afterwards, right. even when eBay started getting invented, you can't, you just couldn't get a hold of them. And the the pay with some big rubble box set, you know, you're looking at like $200 at one point on eBay to just get hold of it. Wow. I mean, thankfully now everything's been reprinted and, you know, all those people who've been hoarding box sets are crying into their lost fortunes they could have made if they'd sell them but uh, you know for years and years and years you just couldn't get hold of this stuff certainly not in the UK so it's not surprising that you didn't mm. play RuneQuest I think I just happened to be fortunate that we we knew someone who bought it all as it came out uh, yeah. and because it was yeah, it, yeah, like yeah. the way shops stock stuff back then as well wasn't like we'll have 10 copies or something like they bought one and they might sell it mm. and that would be it they wouldn't order another one because to order another one it has to go on a container ship and come over and they don't know whether they will or not so they'll get a copy of a role-playing game, certainly a supplement, um, and then once they've sold it, they've sold it. That's it, job done. So it could yeah. just be an availability thing for a lot of people that they, they never even saw this stuff or just couldn't get their hands on it. Yeah, but it, it but it definitely it was definitely a big split, wasn't it? Because it RuneQuest just took a chunk of the D and D people off on a journey that they're, they're still on to this day. <laughs> I think if you picked up RuneQuest and went down that fork in the road, you were doing you were still on the role-playing road, but you were just doing a different path to those who chose to not do that. And I chose not to, and you went into it, and we kind of came back together again years and years later, didn't we? And I just, I have no comprehension of what was going on in RuneQuest World, and you weren't playing Warhammer first time round, didn't play the enemy within. And it was like, you know, you you just took a track, didn't you? You made decisions, maybe even unknowingly, back in the late 70s and early 80s as to what you were going to do. And some people went into, I don't know, Marvel superheroes, or whatever it was, um, because by that time, even in those early days, the hobby was—you could know everything that was coming out, but you couldn't play it all. You definitely can't do that now. But you could get your arms around the hobby back then. You could be knowledgeable. Yeah. but you couldn't play it all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I—I I don't think it was necessarily things passing us by. Sometimes, like you say, you play a campaign, you will play two-year campaigns. Like yeah. you're not going to pick up a new game that's come out because you've got another. 13 levels to go in your current campaign and you're going to finish it. <laughs> That's right. So I'm like, why would you buy another game? Because I'm still playing this one yet. And I know what my second exactly. character is going to be next time when we restart it all. So yeah, there's an element of that, I think. Um, but yeah, I do think it's a, a part of it as well is what you actually see or read about or can get your hands on to a degree as well yes. and what people are into. Um, yeah, I was getting hand-me-downs from some of the guys. That, those guys who went to the first War Games Club with me, they left school years before I did because I joined as a first year and they were probably in the fifth year when I joined. Mm. So I didn't get to hang out with them for very long. 
And they would pass me down games. I mean, one of the first games I ever got or traded was a game called Merc, M-E-R-C, by Fantasy Games Unlimited. And um, it's not the greatest game in the world, but that was, I think, 80 or 81. And that was um, that was about being mercenaries, uh, modern-day mercenaries, uh, dogs of war, going like, you know, hotspots around like Central Africa and stuff like that and assassinating world leaders. Yeah. And if you'd seen like Day of the Jackal or The Wild Geese, That's so honestly, exactly. that you, could, yeah. you could do that. And uh, it had like an acetate sheet with a, with crosshairs on it, um, but you know, having got that, it, that was going to get played. But that was an entire summer. That was that was just that game. Yeah. Played it absolutely to death. Rubbish game. <laughs> I can't remember much more about it. But it got <laughs> six weeks of play, and and we would play every day from dawn till dusk. Instead of running around in the fields like I was doing when I was seven, we would just run around in imaginary fields. <laughs> and and because we were playing work, I guess I wasn't playing. I was I wasn't. I wasn't playing anything in Prax, so it just didn't happen. But I knew all about it and kept up to date because White Dwarf had everything in it and we would play everything that was in White Dwarf. And I remember cutting out Rumble at the Tin Inn and sticking it on cereal packets and, <laughs> and playing that Yeah, um, with all the little counters. And I played those of Car Wars as well and the Steve yeah. Jackson stuff that had the little the little clip boxes. They were, they were great and Ogre. Um, so playing like mad... But I definitely remember not going down the RuneQuest road because I'd filled in the, the blank character sheet on the inside the book. I'd filled it in with pen. That was a ridiculously bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I felt like I couldn't use that anymore. So I didn't. Well, that's <sighs> your fault. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the, the, there are some other things in the 70s. I'm, I'm probably going to. I'm aware that this is going to be a bumper episode as it is. So I'm going to speed through to the end. Skip yes. to the end. But there was like somebody had made an attempt at like gangsters. Role playing game and uh, villains and vigilantes and you know like people basically at this point had started thinking of like what what genres and tropes are there. Let's make a role playing game out of it. Um, mm. The one that I remember that I think was still useful um, from my point of view that I actually played was Bushido, which right. was Feudal Japan. Yes. Uh, and again, it was another sort of I guess you call it a serious game in that it was trying to get it right uh, rather than something mm-hmm. like uh, Legend of the Five Rings now, which is very much a a fantasy version of not just Japan but China and various other eastern countries kind of thing. I think Bushido was trying to be, you know, true to the source of things, including stuff about Buddhism and Shinto and all these kind of things. But um, mm. I don't know. For me, that sounded exotic. I know you're not like massively into the kind of uh, Japanese mythology or anything like that kind of stuff. But for for my tiny mind at the time, anyway, it seemed far from exotic and more interesting than some of the science fiction games we've briefly mentioned and, and other things that just didn't capture my imagination. Where this this almost seemed like a sci-fi game to me because it was so different the world. Yeah. Now, that, that's that's super fair, mate, um, because uh, we had Oriental Adventures for AD&D and um, I remember Lands of Ninja yeah. and there was a lot of interest in that kind of thing back then because, again, in the school playground, everyone was being Bruce Lee. <laughs> that was another cu- cultural touchstone, wasn't it? And I know it's not the same, don't kill me. But, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not. But it was the 70s and I had no idea about anything and still don't. So um, what I do remember about Bushido is that uh, the guys who wrote that went on to be the designers for Shadowrun, which I think is a good fact. Good fact. And well, you can't it? really see the lineage at all, but there you go. Uh, Paul Hume and Bob Charette, I think, as were the designers for those. So I didn't play a lot of Bushido, mate. Um, 
Uh, yeah, God Almighty. I, honestly, at the end of this hour's conversation, I'm thinking, what on earth what was doing? I actually doing? I feel like I've just said that I've not played. I've tried all of these games, didn't play any of them. <laughs> I think when we do our 80s episodes, we'll find out what you're actually doing. Because as you say, oh, we, we're back in the game. This is like all the old stuff, isn't it? That, that came out a little bit before we actually started yes. playing. We were like four and five when these when these games were coming out, rather than of proper gaming age. Um, the couple of bits I wanted to mention about Bushido actually is that. Uh, it had an honor system that you're supposed to adhere to, right? Um, which was different than alignment, really. But it, that was an attempt to reduce hack and slash tendencies and make role playing, I don't know, role playing element, I guess, to it. And for mm-hmm. me, that's part of the DNA of where Pendragon comes in, in terms of you're supposed to act in a certain way, and that leads to a certain type of role playing and that yeah. sort of thing. So these games are interesting for the kind of things they did that they then seen a, a later game. And, and for example, Pendragon, people go, oh yeah, we introduced this, that, and the other. And there were some, definitely some new things that Greg introduced with that. But you can see the DNA of it in early games from the seventies. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, yeah, it's a curious bunch. And I think I was just like soaking up everything I could, mostly through the pages of White Dwarf, as we say. And um, and I, and I kind of knew enough about all of these games that I could call role playing my hobby instead of D and D, my hobby. <laughs> so. I wasn't, although D&D was probably the game that I played most often, I wasn't a and d fan, I was a role-playing game fan, because now there's half a dozen of them out there, and I knew enough to get involved in any of those games, and we could pick up and play most things and give it a go, and I dabbled a lot, and we're just learning, really, about how to how to play these things, you know, yeah. just what to do. Um, I, one thing I didn't do enough of back then was just write my own scenarios and write my own campaigns, because... Um, because I would normally pick up stuff that had adventures and I got quite good at running adventures but I was never that great at designing them and that was, and I wish I'd done more of that back in the day and I think because of my lack of experience of writing adventures that's why I didn't get into RuneQuest and Traveller those two big ones because I couldn't really figure out what to do with them and I couldn't afford to buy the books that were going to show me how to do it <laughs> but, but D&D had modules and yeah. short scenarios and I could get them readily and play them and that's that's why I think that one stuck probably. Yeah, that's probably. I mean, I've always been used to making my own adventures up, so I think I, mm. probably why I was happy playing some of the stuff because I could mess around. Although, like I said, for example, with Traveller, I got a bit lost and wished there'd been more for me to run and that kind of thing. Uh, maybe it was a partly a factor of that. The Tunnels and Trolls days when I played a lot of, you know, the solo adventures. And that yeah. got me thinking about what I'd do if I had some players, <laughs> to a degree. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. And, and coming up with my own stories, perhaps. Well, that's right. Because I mean, if we if we go forward in time, we'll eventually hit fighting fantasy, where we all became solo game book mm. players for a while. And um, yeah, there's something to be said, mate, for sort of building your GMing chops by playing solo solo game books. And TNT was a game you could do that. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Good for TNT. Because it's a strange mix, isn't it? If you come out of the seventies into the eighties and you're into this this new thing, just before it goes massive and the D and D's a cartoon on the telly and yeah. everybody's playing the red box, it's just before that. And who could have known where it was going to go? Because what a strange collection of role playing games! If you had them all on your on one shelf, you could fit them all on one shelf as well. Yeah, you you that's an esoteric collection. <laughs> and quite a lot of them died, and and. I don't want to be mean. I think someone would have died even in today's market. <laughs> but, yeah. but it's interesting what people would try, like I say, but the, most of the years of the 80s, there's probably as many games come out every year as there were in the whole of the 70s. Yeah, I'd say um, so. Yeah, so that's... Definitely. 
Yeah, I don't know. It must have been a really funny time to be around and writing something. You know what I mean? If you decided, yeah. I've got a great game, it's based on Watership Down, D&D's doing well, I think this will take mm. off. Like That must have been a curious well, thing to do. Yeah. Uh, my experiences were that wargaming was a thing. Was, yeah. um, painting models and fighting out battles, historical stuff mainly. And then, you know, fantasy wargaming was also a thing off the back of medieval style stuff. And that was like really interesting. And then people started putting some magic into it and what have you. And I could totally understand where D&D had come from. Totally get it. Because I could see that happening in my village hall and um, and in the wargame societies at schools and universities and stuff like that. So that turning into D&D made a lot of sense. But the other games were having to bootstrap themselves up and like either do a setting like Tecumel or Glorantha. And they were, you know, going for that. And then they were trying to be sort of realistic single player games um, or Traveller was trying to model physics. And it was just coming in from a completely different vector. But the D&D one, it, it just found a home and flourished because I think it grew up off the back of existing hobbyists. Mm. So, and, and, you know, it's it's a weird one to be the granddaddy of all games because it doesn't. It just does D and D really well. It doesn't, you know. If you had to start it again, I suppose it's like the motor car, isn't it? You wouldn't invent it looking like it does now, <laughs> but it's it's had to iterate on previous things to get to where it is. Um, but yeah, the seventies was bizarre, um, and yeah, it's, it's it. Who knows? The hobby could have died at that point, yeah, couldn't it? Do you quite. think the hobby could have just completely dribbled away and? It wouldn't have even been a footnote because it would have been, been talked about like you know four or five or six years in a part of America, probably <laughs> around Lake Geneva. Or something. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so. I, I, it doesn't make me think about OSR as well. I know that like there's very different ways of describing that whole movement, if it even is that. Uh, but some people talk about mm. like you know going back as an old school Renaissance and playing games like seventies D D and. I, Looking back at the games that were there then, and even seventies DD, I don't think that's what they're doing. I think no, I think that's not. what they think they're doing, or their their recollection or a, a nostalgic view of that mm-hmm. that they want to try and recreate. But if you look at what was actually there and what you got out of it, I don't know. It was, it just yeah. It feels like um, it is that like primordial soup almost with a lot of it. That you yeah. know you can see the building blocks there, but it's not something you want to build your house on right now. No. Strange, strange times, but the people who were playing those games then became the writers of the games in a few years, and then they were, you know, that's you know, we'll, we'll, we'll circle back round to that in another cast, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. But you know, and yet conversely, this takes us conversely, to there's, there's, I'm yeah, just going to say, there's still people uh, like Travelers going strong, for example. There's still people who got to travel kind of yes, year. you know, D and D's as popular as it's ever been. Tunnels and Trolls keeps, and Chivalry and Sorcery and various other ones have all got new editions within the last ten years. And may do again, mm-hmm. as you say, mostly price buys and private eyes has just been kickstarted, uh, and that's yes. I, I like that one in particular. I backed it myself, even though, despite what I said about the TNT system, but it just had a delightfully old school feel to it. And the guys who were doing yeah. the Kickstarter, it felt like your granddad doing one because they are guys that are going to be ten yeah. years older than us. But all the things on the updates and that sounded like some a couple of guys were going like, "Oh, people still like a game and want to bring it out." I'm not quite sure what we do. Uh, how do I turn this on? And it just had that really sort of like uh, Ross Tinted Specs view of the world. I, I, really, I really liked the way they did it. It wasn't like people trying to make money. It was just some guys going, we'd really like to print some books because apparently there's some people out there on the internet that still like the game. And, you know, <laughs> it, it was a real uh, 
tugged on the old heartstrings it did so it's well worth backing but uh, as much as a, a weird set of games as it is almost or a funny set of games there's still people who love them and lots of people who want to go back yeah. and pull them back to the modern day as well yeah, the trouble is if you go back and get those systems on PDF or however you get them now, what you don't get are those long glorious summers. That's true. Where you and your mates had nothing else to do and there was we didn't have the distractions that the modern world has. Um massive distractions, you know, the internet and wives. <laughs> things <laughs> like that. So <laughs> So we don't we don't have those times. You you can you know, the stuff you get into when you're twelve or thirteen years old is the stuff that will always mean the most to you whether it's music or your gaming or your pals or whoever it is. And, you know, that that's like peak being obsessed about stuff mm. time. But you can't have it back because when you're a grown-up, you can never go back to get the package. And it's the package that you need because I can't believe that anybody played Chivalry and Sorcery just purely based on the numbers and the words that were printed in those books. It would have been the, the, the guys they had around the table and the house that they played in and, you know, the environment and the friendships. Because that's what role playing is actually all yeah. about, isn't it? It's actually we we often think it's about the box sets and the supplements and the dice, and those are just the tools. Um, and those early tools were just they were just ways of of nerds getting together to pretend to be other people for a bit, which probably means as much now as it did back then. But back then, if you were a nerd, you really were a nerd. Because <laughs> 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 it was harder. <laughs> It's, yeah, it feels funny as well when you go to a convention, even something like, say, Continuum, for example, which is viewed a certain way because of its uh, affection for Cthulhu and Gloranthan games and stuff like that. So that it feels like an old convention mm. almost. And there you'll get some people arguing about whether Chivalry and Sorcery 2nd Edition was best. And you look around and most yeah. people don't even know that game exists or ever existed. And you can find little microcosms <laughs> of people arguing over which of the sets of rules of a game that has been out of print for <laughs> Decades, he's yeah. best, and uh, but that does, I think, like you say, come down to what you played first or what you played at a prime time in your life, and therefore have an affection for. Mm. Um, so some of these things you can't get back; you had to be there. Sorry, kids. Yep, yep, you did, you did. Well, good times, mate. And and again, we've really we've only just covered a little bit of it. I think depending on where you were in the world and what you were doing at the time is just as important as what was on the release schedule. I guess this little journey back in time has reminded me that although I was aware of most of these things, I didn't get to play all of it. Not really. And I would consider myself a hardcore gamer at that point. That was that was eating up every spare moment I had, and I had a lot of spare time. <laughs> so it's that's that's interesting. What was I doing? I think I was too busy playing to be a real collector. <laughs> <laughs> Spent more time reading White Dwarf than anything, I imagine. But um, yes, yes, absolutely. If you're out there in listener land and you're from the States or Canada or Brazil or Japan or one of the other countries where we have loyal listeners, uh, please do write in and let us know what you were doing in the 70s, if indeed you were alive. Maybe ask your dad, see what he was up to. Um, but it'd be good to find out around different parts of the world what other people were doing, especially if you lived near Lake Geneva in America or somewhere out in the wilds where maybe a role-playing book only came once every 10 years. Tell us what you were doing, because we'd be desperate to know. Yeah, and tell us if you're still playing that stuff now. If, you, if you've got an active Boot Hill group, I'd kind of love to know about that. That'd be amazing. Metamorphosis Alpha, what was I missing out on? Gamma World, tell me about your bunnies and your badgers and your porcupines with grenade launchers because it's taken me a long time to come around to the idea but now I'm well into it <laughs> and of course there'll be some games we missed 
some cherished item you still have in your loft or maybe on pride of place on your shelves so do let us know what it is that was in the 70s that was great and we'd failed to mention i doubt it was bifrost sorry guys <laughs> <laughs> and that wraps up our old man reminisce through times in the 70s and the 99th episode so we'll see you all again for episode 100 with maybe some special guests or messages of support from both our listeners and until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me see you at issue 100 you can get in touch with the smart party via your favourite electronic means look us up on the forums where we're just about everywhere or you can simply email us at thesmartparty at hotmail.com your comments, insights, questions and revelations are always welcome roll diplomacy Thank you.